My name is Abigail. I'm eight turning nine. And what I would like to be when I grow up is a vet. My dream job is to travel around the world and help animals. My dream job is to be a doctor. What was your dream job when you were a kid? For my dream job, I want to be a dentist and inventor. I want to be the superstar. My dream job is I want to be an office worker like my dad. A star athlete, a doctor, a scientist. My dream job is to become a CEO at a major company. My dream job is to be a cartoonist. Welcome to Pocket Money, a show about the economics of our lives. I'm Mark Toronto. Today we're putting the dream job into the interview seat, checking out its past employment history and calling up its references. We're digging into the concept of the dream job and seeing what it means to different people, how it changes as we get older, and giving those of you out there in the working world some ideas to get a little bit more out of your career right now. So just a quick note before we jump in, this episode is a bit different from what we usually do. Occasionally, we'll be diving even deeper into certain topics to bring you a fresh, new way to think about your life and your money. So thanks for listening, and if you enjoy this episode, send it to a friend who's caught up in their own career struggle right now. So the main question, is there really such a thing as a dream job? And if so, what is it? Well, a survey of a thousand US children from 2017 found that dream jobs most commonly include doctors, veterinarians, police officers, athletes, teachers, and of course, astronauts. Jane Jackson is a career management coach and author, and she spends her days helping people through what she calls the emotional roller coaster of seeking out a rewarding career. When I interview people and I ask them, you know, what did you want to be when you grew up, when you were a little boy or a little girl? They often would say roles such as being a vet or a pilot or Superman. <laughs> and, and that's what they think about in the early days, because that's all we know when we're younger. And it might be obvious, but according to this same survey, kids are most influenced by TV, movies, and for better or worse, their favourite YouTubers. The often given advice of following our passions takes second place, and down in third, parents. Men that I've interviewed have said, you know, when I was growing up, I wanted to be a jet pilot because I watched Top Gun um, <laughs> with Tom Cruise. And I think so many people want to be jet pilots. And then later on, they end up becoming an accountant. It's a lot harder than it looks on the big screen. If you want to be an astronaut, it's a lot of work involved. You have to study the right subjects. It takes a long time. You've got to be able to get into the program. Yep. These jobs sound great, but they can also be extremely rare. In fact, The Verge estimates that you've got between a 0.04 and 0.08% chance of progressing to the final round of NASA astronaut recruitment. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. If we look past the dream job ideas children uncover from the media and instead focus on the role of passion, it's now clear that there's a misconception about how and when we even discover our passions. In her book, Grit, Angela Duckworth claims that passions aren't usually the result of a childhood epiphany like we see in the movies. We actually build passions when we're a little bit older in middle and high school as a result of experimenting with different interests. Duckworth shares the example of US Olympic gold medalist swimmer, Rowdy Gaines, who went through five different sports in his childhood before finding swimming in high school. Even Steve Jobs wasn't fanatical about computers during his childhood. 
In his 2005 commencement speech at Stanford University, he told students, The only way to do great work is to love what you do. If you haven't found it yet, keep looking and don't settle. Another well-known example is Scott Adams, the creator of the comic strip Dilbert. He realised his passion for creating comic strips later in life while working at a bank after completing his degree in economics. The important thing is, is what are you interested in? Because what, what I find is that if you do something that you're really good at, but you don't really like it, that's a recipe for burnout. So initially, let's go for what are you really interested in? And having a passion for something is really good, but it doesn't always translate well into a job as such. You might have a passion for photography, for example. Say you become a photographer, but you don't actually enjoy interacting with people, then that's not going to work very well. So sometimes, you know, what, what, what your passion is, maybe it's better to keep it as a hobby. But for other times, if you're able to marry that passion with, you know, the sales side of things or the marketing or the interaction with people, then yes, it could work. So what happens when reality hits? And what happens to our dreams when we're older or once we're already in the workforce? Let's start with passion. There is way too many people in this room right now that are doing stuff they hate. That's the legendary marketer Gary Vaynerchuk all the way back in 2008. He's an author, speaker, and digital innovator with a cult-like following. Like many people, he's found that his original career path wasn't what he wanted it to be. I took over my family business. It was doing a couple million dollars a year. And over a seven year period, I built it up to a $50 million company, turned 30, freaked out, and decided I wanted to do something else. And so that's what I decided I want to do. I became 1% not happy selling wine. One. And that's when I changed my life. A recent survey by LinkedIn CEO Jeff Weiner found that 22% of the Americans surveyed felt like they already had their dream job. Millennials were the least likely to feel like they had a dream job at 12%, whereas baby boomers were the most satisfied at 46%. This might not be so surprising given that we tend to achieve more choice and success in our career as our experience increases. Regardless, these dream jobs didn't include traveling to the stars or working with puppies and kittens. According to the survey, the most popular dream job was simply to own a business. The rest of them were very attainable. There were the childhood favorites like teachers and doctors, but also jobs like manager, CEO, writer, or anything to do with travel. If our dreams change so much and eventually come back to reality, are dream jobs just a myth? Maybe we're just happiest when we're doing something that we feel is making a difference, or when we have a sense of ownership over our work. In his book Lost Connections, Johan Hari talks about research that showed British civil service workers with more control over their work were less likely to become depressed than colleagues on the same pay, in the same office, and with the same status who had less control. He found that one way people were taking control back over their work was by forming democratic workplaces, where the employees own shares in the business. The example he gives, Baltimore Bikeworks, is a bike shop owned by six partners who were once employees at other bike shops and other companies. They do the same work on bikes that they used to, but since forming their business, they reported being dramatically happier. 
The 2017 World Happiness Report shows that you might not necessarily need a dream job to be happy in the first place. A healthy work-life balance, variety, opportunities to learn, autonomy, a higher income, up to a point, and safety on the job all contribute to a happy work life. Depending on whether you know you work to live or you live to work, uh, some people take a dream role as, okay, as long as I get enough money so that I can do what I want on the weekends or in the evenings, that will be the dream for me. But for others, they're looking for more passion and purpose in their lives. And so if they're looking for the meaning of life, then it's really important to think, what is it that drives them? Is it leaving a legacy? Is it making a difference? Is it being creative? Is it being organized? Is it making lots of money, you know, and so depending on what what drives them, yes, if you know what you want, then you can actually create that dream job. Clearly, something happens to us as we mature, and our job goals and expectations come back down to earth. The thing that really keeps me interested is the fact that I am switching what I do regularly. I know that it's not the standard course. Everybody says, go to university, study, work, you know, to get the career you want to do and stick at it for 50 years. But I think the modern world isn't set up like that. Meet Ben Southall. He's a guy with a very interesting take on the whole idea of a dream job. Why? Because he literally had the best job in the world. Are you looking for work? Well, you may want to consider moving to Australia. Australia's Tourism Bureau looking to fill what it is calling the best job in the world. Could this be your new office? Hamilton Island, off the coast of Queensland, needs a caretaker. In 2009, Queensland Tourism in Australia ran a competition for what it described as the best job in the world being a caretaker of an island paradise. I think if you put an advert up and you advertise a job that says anyone can apply, the daily duties were to feed the fish, deliver the mail, watch the whales and write a weekly blog. They put on the back of the advert, there was a salary of $150,000 for six months work. If you imagine that advert going around the world to the Northern Hemisphere in the first week of January, if anyone's ever been there, it's a pretty grim, dark, cold, wet place. As you may expect, a lot of people applied. Tourism Queensland really jumped on their surfboard at the beginning of the digital age. They came up with the idea of this application process literally being a one-minute video to say why you would be the right person for the job. The team at Tourism Queensland were flooded with applications. They had you know, 35,000 people apply, so that's 35,000 minutes worth of videos they had to look through. But in the end, they came down from 35,000 to about 200 people who they genuinely considered would uh, be of the right caliber to go for the role. It took Ben months and a number of shenanigans to win. I created a bit of a PR campaign in the UK and it was probably about eight weeks after the original advert had gone out to say why I'd be the right person. So I went into central London. I did a massive thing in a park in London, handing out free flowers to mothers on Mother's Day. I swam up the River Thames on a lilo covered in a, a white dinner jacket with a snorkel and mask on. I got the local TV crews to come out and follow it. And that was my bit of publicity, a bit of a stupid Englishman's idea of what it's like to go out and do that job on the Great Barrier Reef. That got Ben into the next round, from 35,000, now down to 50. From there, he met with the CEO of Hamilton Island Enterprises and was selected as a finalist. 
and the final itself was to be taking place on Hamilton Island out in the Whit Sundays in Australia six weeks later. By this stage, I was two and a half months into a recruitment process for a job I didn't think I was ever going to get. So to get to flown out to Hamilton Island with 12 other finalists was, for me, my biggest win. And there were some really high caliber people that were in the running for the job. There was a a presenter from CNN Asia. There was a gentleman who uh, was presenter for Getaway over in New Zealand. There was a girl who had quarter of a million following on YouTube for her tech channel that she ran out there. So I realized that, wow, you're, you're up against it here. But just keep doing what you're doing because you realize, you know, for a reason you're there. And if you keep doing what you're doing and being the right sort of person, who knows what might happen. Eventually, after a three-day trial and a final traditional job interview, on May 6, 2009, it happened. It gives me great pleasure to introduce the new caretaker of the islands of the Great Barrier Reef from the United Kingdom, Ben Savold. Once the dust settled, the reality of his new life started to sink in. It was an incredible job, but it was also incredibly demanding. It was the best job in the world. It was also the busiest job in the world because no day was the same. If you could average out what a day would involve, basically in the six-month window, I visited 60 different islands. So that narrows it down to about three days per island over my six-month window. Three days is just about enough time to arrive on an island, uh, meet the crew, the manager, the owner of the island, the PR team, to then experience everything that island's got on offer. And if you imagine we went from base level backpacker experiences and camping all the way up to six star villa luxury. So to go and experience what each island has on offer, to then do that whole thing for a day, whether it's from nine in the morning till probably nine, 10 o'clock at night, have dinner, and then go back to my room and then start my day, start my job, which was to basically document and write blogs about the experiences, to generate lots of great social media stories, to edit videos. And then usually about midnight, one o'clock in the morning, I would roll into bed to then get up at six o'clock in the morning to go for a run, to clear my head and to go through it all again. It was, in Ben's words, amazing. And he wouldn't change it for the world. An average day could have been swimming with whale sharks. It could have been skydiving out of planes over the wet Sundays, you know, teeing off with Adam Scott at the PGA at Coulomb. There were so many different elements to the job. There was never an average day, but they were all bloody, bloody good. But there was a lot of stress as well. This had never been done before. It was 2009. I think after the first week, we realised that what would be a perfect scenario might not be because you go out and you try and put together a blog and you get on the internet on a remote island and obviously reception signal are things that are not there. So we weren't able to deliver as many immediate social media stories and blogs as we'd hoped. So a lot of the, the content had to be built up and built up until we could get to somewhere with signal and then deliver it on mass and schedule it to roll out later. And that first week on the job, we had no internet at the house where I was staying on Hamilton Island. So I had to run up to the top of the hill each night and upload from a, a little 3G router. There are probably some of you listening to this thinking, no internet, not knowing what you're going to do tomorrow, sand, that doesn't sound like a dream. And according to Jane, you'd be right. In Jane's world, everyone has a different set of career anchors that propel them towards different jobs. Career anchors were actually created by Dr. Edgar Sheen. There are a number of anchors that the theory defines. There's general managerial anchor, a technical functional anchor, autonomy, entrepreneurial creativity, 
dedication to a cause or service, lifestyle, which we all kind of like a fair bit, yes, a pure challenge or security. And so depending what the pull is, we need to be mindful of that when we're making our career decisions and the choices as we progress in our careers as well. Because honestly, it's really easy to veer away from your anchor. It might require you to sit down and really think about what matters to you, but it's worth it. If you understand what your anchors are and you can follow it, then you will be happier in your career. And let's not forget, a dream job is still a job. It's full of hard work. We always knew from the days that we applied for the best job in the world, there was a lot more to it than just reading a book on a beach. This was about return on investment for an organisation, Tourism Queensland. And I would be working very hard, and, you know, a public-facing figure who was out there in the limelight presenting a series for Nat Geo, entertaining celebrities like Oprah as they came across to come and experience the best job in the world. So for me, something where I'm engaged, I'm meeting new people, I'm doing something all the time, that's my perfect job. And it's really all about what you get out of it day to day. You know, when you first start a job, most people get really excited because, oh, this is really new and there's so much to learn. And when we're learning, we're growing. And when we're learning, that's the challenge, isn't it? Even when we were in school or when we're at university, we're absorbing information. And it's the challenge to come to grips with new concepts and new ideas or even new skills. Say if you're, you're learning a new trade or a skill, it's the journey that's important. And unless we have challenge, we will not grow as individuals. And And ultimately, if there's no challenge, we will get bored. Even those lucky few who attain the dream jobs we have in childhood still work very hard. Phil Davis is co-captain and defender for the Greater Western Sydney Giants an Australian rules football club, or as we call it, AFL. There's the siren, and he's got a kick from 55 metres out. We stopped by the training ground at Sydney's Olympic Park to chat with Phil about his job and where it all started. I guess I always loved sport growing up. Started with soccer, then some basketball. I presume when I was young, I used to kick balls around the house. But the life of a professional footballer is much more than just kicking the ball around with your friends. In the pre-season, training sessions are long and include plenty of hands-on practice, physiotherapy, workouts, strategy sessions, and recovery. Pre-season, all about physical exertion, uh, maximising your body. In-season, all about recovery and reviewing how you've played and move on. And I always like to say that the pre-season is physically demanding. I find the in-season very mentally demanding with the challenges of performance, the anxiety around that, the stresses that come with just performance week in, week out. And life as a professional athlete isn't a cakewalk financially either, even with the large salaries we hear being thrown about in the news. So if you're off-season, players have to fund their own gear in the off-season. They can wear Giants gear if they want to, but normally players want to wear fluoro orange in a gym, in a public gym. According to numerous news stories, several pro athletes from around the world have gone bankrupt. Research also shows that the average career span for a pro athlete is 4.8 years for NBA basketball players, 3.2 years for NFL players, and 6 years for players in the AFL. A quick search will dig up plenty of stories of post-dream job careers. There are obvious examples like Arnold Schwarzenegger's huge post-bodybuilding career in Hollywood and politics, but there are also less-known examples. Terry Chimes, one of the founding members of British punk band The Clash, ended up being a chiropractor. And remember Vanilla Ice? Ice, ice, 
Well, he now buys, renovates, and resells houses. This means that gifted athletes like Phil still need a career plan once retirement rolls along. He's currently working towards a business degree while he's playing professional footy. It's been discipline, to be honest. A lot of times I have not wanted to study or go into uni or do anything like that, but I've just been like, I want to get it done. It's going to be one of my biggest achievements. And also I'm very acutely aware that as soon as I retire, whether it be 32, 33, 34, next week, whenever it is, I'll be in a position where I need to get a job. And these days it's harder and harder to get a job. And I just know that if I have a piece of paper, maybe that will open one more door. And that might be the door that gets me a job that I actually like. Not every dream job sets you up for the rest of your life. As much as we earn, we don't earn um, NBA numbers where we can just sit on an island for the rest of our lives. And speaking of islands, Ben realised that after his six-month stint in the best job in the world, he wanted to help others decide on the right job for them. Since then, he's been an author, television presenter, public speaker and videographer. And he now runs an adventure travel company with expeditions to places like Everest Base Camp and the Leh Manali Highway, the world's highest road in India. We now take groups of people out into very remote wilderness areas of the world to challenge themselves physically, mentally and culturally. Um, and we take small groups out into to wilderness areas like the Arctic or into deserts or into the centre of Africa to really expand people's belief in what they think they can achieve. And the result is these people come back better, stronger, better connected and desiring to get out there and do another challenge themselves. While the concept of the dream job or best job in the world might not appeal to you, the biggest question on your mind right now might be how you can get your own career on track. According to Jane, it's a mix of research and taking stock of what you have to offer. Let's age fearlessly as I get older too. I think, oh, you know, I wonder, will I ever get too old? And I'm thinking, well, you know, I don't feel too old and I'm enjoying what I do. Health is important. Vitality is important. If you're tired and, you know, fed up and you've got a negative attitude, then you're going to be perceived as much older than you really are. But then you can get young people who are tired and negative attitude as well. And it's never too late. Is it a viable option? That's what's really exciting about seeing someone make a career change. When I grow up, my dream job is to be a gymnast. When I grow up, I want to be a footy player. Hello, my name is Lydia and I am nine years old and my dream job is to be an adventurer. Thanks for listening to another episode of Pocket Money. You can find the full show notes at finder.com.au slash podcast, plus some other fine episodes. I'm Mark Tirano, and this episode was co-written and produced by Franco Ally. Brianna Ansaldo of Bambi Media is our editor extraordinaire. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes and make sure you subscribe so you don't miss the next great episode of Pocket Money. Thanks for listening to Pocket Money from Finder. Head over to finder.com.au slash podcast for the show notes for this episode. The Finder podcast is intended to provide you with tips, tools, and strategies that will help you make better decisions. Although we're licensed and authorized, we don't provide financial advice. So please consider your own situation or get advice before making any decisions based on anything in our show. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.